All right. Well, I don't know if we will be able to finish our discussion of accounting today, but if not, I think we should be fairly well positioned to be able to finish it when we get together on Tuesday of next week and uh, then jump into our next major topic, which is the procurement process. And so I am looking forward to that. We have a lot of important things, though, to talk about today and kind of continuing what we did when we were together on Tuesday, uh, I want us to spend some time looking together at things in the SAP ERP system. That will be examples of, of the things that, that we uh, are discussing. So uh, without further ado, introduction to accounting. And I, I can't really think of anything in particular uh, to suggest that we that we review, we will do a little bit more of the kinds of things that we did on Tuesday today as far as these uh, accounting posting scenarios. And, and let me just describe to you a couple of things. On your, on your midterm exam and, and maybe on quizzes if we have one in the very near future, obviously it's not really feasible for me to ask you to draw T accounts and, and represent things as we have done here but the kinds of questions that you might see would be uh, true or false. We pay $1,000 to Johnson Lumber to settle our account. This results in which of the following postings? Um, debit the bank account $1,000, uh, credit the vendor account $1,000, or credit the bank account $1,000, debit the vendor account, or debit the bank account, credit accounts payable, or, you know, and, and you would have to look at that and say, okay, this is the one of those that matches up. Or alternately, I could ask the same question and say, uh, we pay $1,000 to Johnson Lumber, which of the following is true? And then I say, debit the bank account as choice A, credit the bank account as choice B. Debit accounts payable, credit accounts payable, and so on. And in that case, you would have to pick two or potentially more choices to represent the actual postings there. So the bottom line is here, there will be a good number of questions as it relates to these financial accounting scenarios. And so do make sure that you take the time to, to understand them. Uh, the key uh, I have always felt is just being able to keep track of the things that were represented uh, in part on this slide right here, which is what does it really mean to debit a, an asset account? And as long as you can keep in mind, okay, debiting an asset account means I have more of that asset. And a lot of times, as long as you can remember two or three good rules of thumb like that, then at that point it becomes very easy to put together the rest of the transaction. But whatever mechanism you are going to use, make sure that you're prepared for, for those uh, financial accounting posting questions because, as you will see, they become very, very important to us in our overall understanding of information handling in our ERP system. Well, where we are going to jump in today is uh, in the neighborhood of where we left off last time, and that is talking about this new general ledger. And I don't know if you have noticed this in doing your lab work. I, I hope you have. There's a lot of things that I hope that you notice as you are working along. But in regards to a lot of the accounting-related configuration, you saw folders or transactions with the word new in them. 
you know, new something or other related to financial accounting. And, and perhaps you wondered um, what the deal with that is. Well, in fact, in, in 2007, and I don't know that memorizing the year is important, but I just wanted you to have the date there. In 2007, SAP changed the way the general ledger worked in financial accounting. And that's not that long ago. That's eight years, which I realize in, in the span of your higher education and you know perhaps that goes back to uh, high school or even earlier than that for some of you but in the scope of a of a of a company uh, there are a lot of people that have worked with and remember well the process of converting to the new general ledger and in fact a lot of companies did not make the conversion until a few years after that so even though we look at that and say 2007 was eight years ago people still were refer to it as the new general ledger. And I don't know at what point they will stop calling it the new general ledger and just call it the general ledger. Well, what changed? Perhaps the biggest change that the new general ledger brought to us was this opportunity to engage in parallel accounting. And in your homework, you, you had a a question or two about this and and most of you explained the the utility of this but just to uh, go over that for some of you that that might not be clear about this the idea is that we are familiar with the idea of a company having a chart of accounts and a general ledger that goes with that well what we can do is we can actually have more than one chart of accounts and more than one general ledger. And immediately the question becomes, well, well, why would you want to do that? And so we need to explore that for a moment. But what we can do is we, we have to designate one of the ledgers as our primary main ledger. And we call that the leading ledger. And then all of the other ledgers are non-leading ledgers. Now, why do we have to designate one as the leading ledger and what's the significance of that? Well, what we will do as a way of facilitating this is we will take all of the accounts in our leading ledger and map them to accounts in the alternate ledgers, in the non-leading ledgers. So for example, in one chart of account in our leading ledger, our bank account might be account number 100,000. Well, in our other non-leading ledger, that bank account or that account might be called something slightly different and would have a totally different account number. And so what we do is we go in and we configure, okay, this in the leading ledger relates to this in the non-leading ledger. And we set up that logic. Now, the, the idea here is that what that is going to enable us to do is we operate using our leading ledger. And then all of the data that's in our leading ledger is automatically populated to the other ledgers based on this mapping that we have done. And so from our perspective, it becomes very transparent once we have done the configuration. Now the obvious question, at least to me, is um, why, would we, why would we do this? Well, there's lots of different reasons. One is um, we have country-specific charts of accounts. And so we need to uh, rationalize those in some way because we are a multinational company. 
And so we have one company code that is in Canada, and they have a chart of accounts that they use as their leading chart of accounts. And we are in America, and we have our leading ledger, and then we have a subsidiary, let's say, in Mexico, and they have their leading ledger. But at some point, for the sake of understanding our overall performance, we want to bring all of that information together but if we're all using different ledgers, that's going to be very complicated. So what we could do is we could decide, okay, we're going to use this other ledger as the standard for international reporting. And so we map everything to these non-leading ledgers and it becomes much easier for us to, for us to support that. Another very common use of this is we buy another company and we want to incorporate them into our overall corporate structure, but they are using SAP ERP, so that's nice, but they are not using the same chart of accounts we are. So how do we solve that problem? Well, we could take our chart of accounts and at least in the short run, make that their non-leading ledger and then set that up so that now that facilitates conversion there. And then at some point in the future, we make what was their non-leading ledger uh, their leading ledger so that we are both using the same chart of accounts and the same general ledger structure. So there's lots of reasons why this was something nice and useful for companies when, when it was introduced by SAP. There are a number of other things also that that SAP introduced here. One was the ability to associate debits and credits with organizational entities. Now you might recall when you were playing ERP SIM and you went into transaction FB50 and you were going to make an investment in capacity improvement or you were going to make an improvement in setup time reduction and you had to put in the account numbers and you had to put in debits and credits but for one of those you had to scroll over and put information further out to the right on one of the lines in one of those fields and if you if you recall there were an awful lot of potential fields there that you kind of just skipped over well, there, in fact, are fields there for us to put in plants and company codes and other organizational entities. And so we could associate a particular credit and say, okay, this credit is primarily uh, being done for the sake of our Dallas plant. And so we have additional ability to code our posting of debits and credits with organizational data for the sake of later analysis. We have the ability to split documents among entities. So kind of going back to that, um, we can have a debit and credit posting where the debit side and the credit side are both associated with different organizational entities. Useful in some situations for the sake of keeping track of things. And, and really a lot of this relates to this next bullet point here, which is real-time reconciliation between financial accounting and cost accounting. Before the new general ledger in 2007, cost accounting was done in a very different fashion. And essentially, you did your financial accounting postings, and then you had to go back and put that data in in the context of cost accounting to have it correctly represented. 
Well, with the new ledger in 2007, those were merged. And so now, when you do the financial accounting posting, the cost accounting information is put there right with that transaction. And going back to the ERP SIM example, um, this was something that some of you might have done, have done as an error. There was one of those postings that you had to do where like the debit, you had to scroll over and put in a, um, a company code for, for the for the cost object. And if you didn't do that, it would not accept that posting from you. So that's an example of what we're talking about here with the real-time reconciliation. But fundamentally, it supports this idea of parallel accounting, which gives us the idea uh, of being able to have multiple sets of books. And I would point out, you know, when you hear that multiple sets of books, we're not talking about like the mafia that has like their official records and then like the fake records they give the government. We're not talking about using this as a vehicle for, for fraud or, or some kind of difference other than us being able to capture our information accurately and correctly but represent it in different ledgers in a way that might be useful in our organization. Any questions about the, the new general ledger? All right, well then I have some questions for you. Uh, true or false, subsidiary ledgers are not a part of the general ledger. Give you a second to think about that. And uh, is that true or is that false? That is true, and that's a very, very important concept to understand. It relates to the general ledger, but the subsidiary ledgers are something that is totally different from that great example of something that I'm 100% sure will show up as a question on your midterm exam. Subledgers exist for all of the following except customer accounts, vendors accounts, assets, and, and liabilities, or all of these have, have subledgers. So this is kind of an interesting one. So let's just go kind of one by one. Do we have subledgers for customer accounts? Yes, we obviously do, and so that, that can't be the right answer. Okay, do we have subledgers for vendor accounts? Yes, yes, we absolutely do. And both of these give us the ability to, to keep track of how much money we have coming in or how much money we have going out. Do we have subledgers for assets? We have not really talked about this much. I think we alluded to it in passing, and you would have seen this in your reading. But in fact, yes, it is true. Um, we have subledgers for for assets. So right away, we know at this point that it's not going to be E because we've already ruled out A, B, and C. And, and D is, in fact, the correct answer. We do not have subledgers for liabilities. Now, I would suggest this to you as a good test-taking strategy that you might want to employ. There are lots of different ways to attack a question like this. But a lot of times, if I'm not 100% sure of the answer, I'll, I'll cross off all the things that I know are wrong and see what I'm left with. And so even if you weren't sure about liabilities being the correct answer, hopefully you had good confidence in the fact that these were not uh, the correct answer to the question. And so that just leaves us with D as a possibility. 
Uh, let's see what we have here next. Test your understanding. Posting to reconciliation accounts happens automatically based on a process called account reconciliation, account determination, account calculation, or account posting. And which one is it? It is, in fact, account determination. And so uh, hopefully you remember, and if not, I'll show you this in a few moments here, setting this up in the context of your lab work because it's a great example of, of what we talked about when we were together last time. Debiting an asset account reflects increasing the value of that asset. Is that true or false? That is, in fact, true. Okay, so this goes back to uh, understanding the various rules related to the financial accounting postings that we talked about. So hopefully that was a, a useful review and, and, and you did well of those. Well, let's uh, continue our, our discussion here. Yes, sir. Liabilities as a class don't. You're right. You capture it in terms of the vendor, which the vendor might be a, uh, a financial entity that you owe money to. But because we classify them as a vendor, that's different than the way that liabilities are more summary, you know, kind of like accounts payable, accounts receivable kind of idea and so your accounts are actually for the vendor that then populates up to a summary account based on liabilities. So it can be and that by the way is a question that I stole from from SAP because that's one that they use on their certification test so um, they like to ask questions that have that kind of subtle difficulty to it. Other questions? Alright so Hopefully, it is no surprise to you at this point that when we talk about financial accounting, uh, the company code becomes very, very important here. It's the focal element of financial accounting as we have observed at least 5,000 times so far this semester. What I want to make sure that we understand, though, is that the statement that we, we really should keep in mind about this is that a company code is the smallest legal entity where financial accounting can, can be conducted. So what I'm saying is if, if this is a client and we're building a, a tree here, and under that tree we have company code one, and we have company code two, and, and we have company code three. Well, maybe at any given point in time, the way we do our tax filings is company code one does their tax filing independently of company code two, which does their tax filing independently of company code three, which does their tax filing. But the nature of what we are saying here is we could particularly if accounting laws change or, or tax laws change more precisely, we could file a consolidated tax return that combines all three of these company codes. So we're not saying that you can't put together larger structures than a single company code for the sake of financial accounting. But what we are saying is that we would never come down here into company code two and say you have plant P1, it, it has to pay taxes separately. It's its own entity. 
So the idea here is that all of our financial accounting revolves around these company codes, and they're the smallest entity in our overall structure where financial accounting can, can be conducted. So what this means is that in the real world configuration process here, we really do have to have an understanding of tax law and commercial law and accounting standards that we have to take into account before we just say, okay, this is going to be a company code. Because if we're not classifying something correctly in that regard, it can make our records inaccurate and can in fact get us in trouble with one of these entities, the, the tax people, the law people, or the accounting people that are ultimately going to be looking at these things. The IRS, the SEC, there are any number of governmental entities that, that might have interest in this, absolutely. I, I think we made this observation before, without one operating company code and a client, we can't do financial accounting. If we can't do financial accounting, we basically can't do anything. So that's why typically one of the very first things we will do in the configuration process is define one or more company codes and then set about setting up our corporate structure based on those company codes. And that's exactly what you guys did when you did your lab work starting out this semester. And then the bottom line is once we have our financial accounting structure established within our company code, at that point it actually becomes kind of easy, believe it or not, in that all we have to do now is define what things that we will do as a company have a financial accounting implication and then define, okay, when this happens, here's the financial accounting document that gets created. So we go into the system and say, okay, when a customer sends us a payment, that's going to result in the following postings. When we ship out materials, that's going to result in the following postings. And we configure it one time, and then it just works beyond that forever. Because it will generate the appropriate financial accounting documents for the sake of the maintenance of our financial accounting records. So this points to why the configuration here is so key. Now let's look at a financial accounting document. Um, exciting stuff, I, I know, not really, but, but very much key to understanding how this works in an organization. And, and I really want us to look at it here in the context of this slide and then go into the system and, and actually see how this is implemented here. Okay, so we have a header section, we have a line item section, and as we hopefully well know at this point, everything in the header section is universal for the document. So, what do we have here? We have a document date, no surprise there. We have a company code, no surprise there. Then we have a, a document number. We have a document type, which we'll talk more about in a moment. It essentially says what kind of financial accounting transaction this is. We have a posting date, which might actually be different from the document date in some scenarios. We have a currency, because this is going to be recorded in you know, euros or dollars or whatever have you. Notice that that's part of the header. So that means that whatever the debits and credits are down here, they both have to be in the same currency. And in fact, in your configuration, you might recall, you just went ahead and defined that your company code always uses 
this one currency. And so this is something that the system might just pull out and default for us as part of, of the entry of this. This is a great example of something that could be a field status variant. If we define that for our company code, we will always use US dollars, then the system will default to that and inhibit the field that even asks what currency this is in. And it will just automatically know that US dollars are correct there. Uh, a reference number for the sake of tracking this basically would be something akin to a document number, but uh, generated by the system. And then we have an account number, the name of that account, whether it's a debit or credit, and then the amount. And so that's what we see in a, in a financial accounting document. Well, let's actually see what this looks like in the system as, as a way of hopefully understanding this a, a little bit better. Okay, so we go into accounting, financial accounting, general ledger, and document display. All right, and so I need to at this point uh, pick up a document in the system. So I'm going to click on document list. And at this point now, it, it needs to know some things to be able to, to uh, give me a list of documents. And so I'm going to uh, do this for my company code, uh, US02. I'm not going to key in a document number because I want to see a whole set of them. A as we will discover, if I... Um, if I leave off the fiscal year, it's going to require me to put that in. And then notice here, it's asking me, okay, which ledger do you want to use? Do you want to use the leading ledger or one of these other ledgers? And in fact, we haven't set up other ledgers, so, so that's why uh, it has defaulted in the leading ledger. Notice we have things here for document type, posting dates, and so on. So if I were looking for a document within a date range or such, I, I could limit what's being displayed here. But obviously, in the case of our company, uh, we don't have um, many documents to weed through here. And notice it says, okay, you, you can't just look for this based on two criteria. And so I'm going to have to come back and I'll give it a fiscal year as another criteria here. So I will key in 2015, and that's now enough information to make it happy. I thought, but no, it wants another selection criteria here. So um, I don't want to put in, I could put in a document number, you know, like from zero, zero, for, from zero to like 99999. I'm not going to do that. Let's look at uh, this document type here for a moment as a way of examining another choice. If I do a search here, these are all of the different types of financial accounting documents. Every financial accounting document, and I can get almost all of them on the screen, will be coded with a two-letter document type code to indicate what this is actually containing. And so notice, for example, um, if it's a vendor credit memo, 
that's code KG. If it's a vendor invoice, that's code KR. Um, if it's a goods issue, that's code WA. So the fact is, if I were looking for a, a document in the system, I could use this as a way of limiting the documents that, that I'm looking for. Well, we don't have a lot of documents. We certainly don't have documents of every one of these types. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, show me all document types between AA and the last one here is ZV. Okay, so I'm going to get all the documents for year 2015 for my company code, and now it will be happy, and in fact, show me the list of, of documents. Don't have a lot of them here, okay? Um, looks like we have 14 different documents that I have posted in the system for me. And then notice, here's our two-letter code, two codes, RV, SA, DZ, KZ, WL, WA. I'm a little bit further ahead of you guys in the lab work, but I'm purposely not working super far ahead. So chances are pretty good if you did exactly what I did for your company code, you'd see about this many documents. Now, if you think about it, do you remember going into that transaction FB50 and manually putting in debits and credits this many times? And the answer to that should be no, because these accounting documents, with a couple of exceptions, were generated automatically as you did other things in the system. For example, RV, what is that? What, what kind of document is that? If I use the search there, I can see that RV is a, a billing document. And so let's look at that. I can take this line here and I can select it and say that I want to look at the details. And, and here we go. Here's the actual posting here. It, it looks like this is, um, now if you look at this, you might say, oh, we have, we have values here and we have positive numbers and negative numbers, which, which is associated with debits and credits. But you still might be wondering, okay, how does this relate to the general ledger? So I can click on this button right here and now it tells me, okay, so we had um, a value posted to trade receivables and then that's offset with all of these different values related to sales revenue. Now you might be wondering, well, which one of those is the debit and which one of those is the credit? It would be really nice if they spelled that out and put debit and credit, but they don't. They use numbers. And so if we look at this posting key PK01 is a invoice and it's a D, it's a debit, okay? So this was a debit that came off of an invoice and then sales revenue is posting key 50 and that is a credit entry and just uh, obviously a credit. And so that is the general ledger activity here associated with us generating an invoice. So when you ran the transaction which all of you should have done now in your labs where you went in and generated an invoice, this is what happened automatically. The accounting system just grabbed the values off of the invoice and did the appropriate financial accounting posting to the general ledger for us. How did it know what accounts to post to? That's account determination. We'll, we'll look at that in, in just a second. So RV, that was a revenue financial accounting document. Uh, let's pick another one here. Let's see, what's, what's SA? Uh, SA is 
uh, general ledger account document. That's fun because there's some of these that it's just like, that's kind of just like a generic document, a, ge a generic general ledger account document. So let's see what this guy actually is right here. So we'll look at the details and here we see, oh, look at this. This is when um, we brought some money into our organization through the sale of common stock. That was one of the first things you did in phase one so that you had some cash to spend. And so I did that too. We reflected an increase in our bank account by debiting our bank account $60,000. Here's posting key 40 in this situation, which is a generic debit entry. And that's being offset with a generic credit to common stock both of these for $60,000. And we could actually go in, we can look at it based on the, the line items here, we can look at it based on the general ledger. Not a lot of difference here. Um, some of the things where we see the posting keys and some of the things we don't. Now here's another fun thing that the general ledger brought to us. Before the new general ledger, you had to put posting keys on every transaction manually. That was part of doing your postings. Now, those are automated. And so it's still in the system and it's still tracked internally, but we don't have to do, have to do the manual coding associated with that. And so this is uh, the way things are captured in the context of a financial accounting document. And I guess I really haven't done this, uh, so let's do this. We'll pick one more of these. And, and notice on the slide that we were looking at a moment ago, which you, you might have in front of you, it says, okay, there's going to be a document date. Well, there it is right there. There's going to be a document type. And so the document type we saw on the last screen, I don't know if I could uh, pick it out here on this particular screen, document number, um, posting date is right here, uh, currency is right here, reference numbers blank, apparently we're not even using reference numbers, company code is right here. So all of the things that we talked about as being part of a financial accounting document, this is a financial accounting document. And once again, to emphasize, of course, we call it a document, but it probably will never touch paper in this format, but it's the way we capture this and then represent it in our, in our system. Questions about any of this? All right, so I just mentioned this, but it's on the slide here, so uh, look at this for a second here. We observed that documents, financial accounting documents, have a type associated with them, which is a two-digit code that identifies the process that created the document. And so you can obviously understand why this would be useful. We have a dispute from a customer that their payment was not properly applied to their account. I can tell you from having worked before in a company doing accounts receivable work, that's actually a pretty common thing. At least it was very common back during the era when things happened through paper checks. I suppose that electronic transfers of funds have somewhat reduced that. But the person in the, in the, um, in the bank vault room opens it up, they see a check there, they key in an account number, and they, their finger slips and they key in the wrong account number and so the money goes on another customer's account. Or they key in the correct account number, but they key in the wrong dollar amount. 
And so that results in an errant posting. And so you get a call from a customer saying, I just got a bill saying I was past due and I paid you guys. And in fact, I got the check back from my bank and so on and so forth. And so at that point we say, well, okay, let's go look for it in our system. And so if we can go in and look at financial accounting documents and say, okay, I'm only interested in documents of type DZ because this was a customer payment, immediately I can cut down on the number of documents I have to look at. And then I could ask the customer, okay, what day uh, does it show that we cleared the transaction? And so at that point, we could limit it more on day. And then, depending upon how automated we are, hopefully, one of the things that happened was we stamped or encoded the check in some way with a reference number. And so remember on the financial accounting document we were looking at a moment ago, there was a place to put in a reference number. If we could have the customer read us that number, we can key in that reference number and jump immediately to the document that contains the posting associated with that check. And at that point, we could look at it and say, wow, you know, somehow this got posted to the wrong account. And so now we can go about correcting that problem or whatever the issue is. So a lot of the, a lot of the classification that's going on here is partly to organize our records, but it's also partly so that when we have issues and we need to trace problems, it becomes easier for us to isolate certain kinds of documents in, in the system. There are also things, for example, uh, the document type determines account type and account number range that can be validly posted to. Uh, we may come back to that in, in a moment here. Uh, account type is a one-letter code that identifies the type of account being affected. So for example, if we were in the order entry room and the clerk went to key something in as a payment, but it was a payment and it was trying to be posted against an account that's an asset account. This kind of helps us flag that and not accept the errant entry to begin with because there's only certain types of accounts that can accept certain kinds of transactions. And so once again, that's, that's part of our ability to, to keep track of those things. Questions? All right, we're going to change gears here. So hopefully that made sense, but onward and upward here. Asset accounting. From our perspective, as far as we are concerned, there are three different types of assets. There are tangible assets, there are intangible assets, and there are financial assets. Now I realize in another context we could divide that up in different ways, but in SAP ERP that is the way we classify assets and one of those three broad categories. Tangible assets, things like equipment, buildings, stuff that you can touch that have value. Intangible assets are things that perhaps might be memorialized in paper but don't really have uh, a tangible physical presence in the way that a building or a truck or um, a piece of machinery would have. This is things like patents 
or a poem that someone wrote or a song that someone recorded. It's intangible, but it has value. So that's an intangible asset. And, and then we break out financial assets as a third class. This is money and stock and things that can be very easily converted into money. We might alternately call them in another context uh, a liquid asset. It we classify as a financial asset. Yes, sir? Software, is that what you, software would, would generally speaking be considered an intangible asset. That's absolutely correct. Um, computer hardware would be a tangible asset, but the software itself would be intangible. And that would be true both for the developer of the software and the customer who buys the software if it's a significant enough purchase that we would actually capitalize it. So if we go out and spend $10 million buying SAP ERP, that's an intangible asset that our company now owns. Okay. Other questions? Good question. All right. So we can further divide tangible assets into fixed assets, leased assets, and assets under construction. Fixed assets easiest way to think about those is, is they, they don't move around, they're sitting in one place, they're buildings and other things of that sort. Leased assets, the name itself is pretty clear. Uh, we currently have possession of them, but it's a special kind of relationship and that we do not own them, we are leasing them. I used to live uh, in Pensacola, Florida and out on Pensacola Beach, there were a lot of people that had built homes on the beach. They did not own the land that their home sat on. Uh, due to various government regulations, they were not allowed to own it. So they paid money to lease the land for, I think it was 99 years. And at the end of 99 years, they had to hope that their lease would be renewed. But if not, the government who owned the actual property itself could say, okay, your lease period is over, um, buy, take your stuff and leave. And at that point, you could take the belongings out of your house, but good luck taking the house with you. And in fact, I remember one year where there was kind of a, a big political uproar because a lot of people's leases were about to end and the government came back and said we will renew your lease but they wanted like four times more money than they did for the original lease and a lot of people were like where am I going to come up with the money and a lot of people had to kind of sell their lease to someone else uh, that was willing to pay more than demanded there. So a leased asset is something that we possess but we don't actually own it. Assets under construction, pretty straightforward. Uh, at some point here in the very near future, ETS will begin, ETSU will begin work on, I think the next thing to appear will be the football stadium. I'm not sure uh, whether that's going to start first or the work in the Culp Center. But nonetheless, the football stadium will be under construction for a period of time. Well, while it is being built, it has value in the form of an asset that we have to reflect. But when it's finished, it's going to have greater value. And so an asset under construction is obviously just a way of conveying that we're in the process of accumulating the value of this asset, and so we treat it, we treat it differently. Every asset that we track will have its own subledger account. Assets are assigned to company codes, business areas, and cost centers. 
Now, we have not talked about business areas. We certainly have talked about company codes, and you've seen cost centers in the context of your labs, but we haven't really talked about them yet because we haven't talked about cost accounting. But the basic idea here is everything that we own as a company, everything that is an asset of ours, is going to be assigned to various organizational entities for the purpose of what? Financial accounting record keeping, absolutely. We have to know, okay, who gets credit, you know, who, who is going to represent this building on their balance sheet and in their financial records. Um, like kinds of assets are grouped into an asset class. And an account for the asset class is used as the general ledger reconciliation account. So let me explain how this works, and it, it's conceptually the same idea that we talked about last time in terms of customer accounts and vendor accounts. There is an element here of sometimes we buy things as an organization and we decide not to capitalize them as assets. For example, I would seriously doubt whether or not ETSU capitalizes when they go out and buy computers for faculty offices and to put in labs and things like that. Because if you capitalize it, then you have to keep track of it. Now, in fact, all of the computers here on campus have asset tracking tags on them, so maybe I'm wrong about that. And they do actually capture it individually. I don't know. We'd have to talk to someone in accounting to know for sure about that. But other things uh, here on campus that we buy that are assets, we have, they have their own sub-ledger account. So somewhere out there, there is a sub-ledger account for for Nick's Hall. And there's a sub-ledger account out there for Sam Wilson Hall. And there's a sub-ledger account out there for Lamb Hall. And every building on this campus, no matter how big or how small, has its own sub-ledger account. These are all buildings. Therefore, it is very likely that we would create an asset class called buildings. And we would say that every asset in the buildings class maps to a general ledger account called uh, buildings. Okay? And the distinction here is this is a general ledger account, so I'm going to put a mythical number on it here, 110333. And so whenever we acquire a new building, we put it in the building's asset class, and so the financial transactions associated with that asset, which we'll talk about what those transactions are here in a moment, will be mapped to this general ledger account. So we decide as an organization, okay, we're going to have an asset class called buildings. We might have an asset class called equipment. We might have an asset class called vehicles. Um, we might have an asset class called land. So the idea is we think of different things that we have a lot of. We, we group those into a class, and every class is most likely going to map to its own distinct account in, in the general ledger. Now, what is going to be represented in, in these sub-ledgers? Well, there are three primary financial accounting transactions associated with assets. We acquire assets, 
we depreciate assets, and, and we retire assets. Acquire is pretty straightforward. That's when we go out and buy it, or hypothetically someone gives it to us. But at some point, the asset becomes ours, and so normally the creation of the subledger account will happen when the asset is acquired. Well, if we jump to the other end of this, at some point in the future, and it may not have happened yet, the asset will be retired and we will get rid of it. And at that point, we need to make sure that the account has been zeroed out to reflect that there's no more value here and we transfer it to another entity. It might be that we have a piece of manufacturing equipment that we've used for 30 years and we need to get rid of it. It still works, but we don't need it anymore. No one wants to buy it from us, so we're just going to sell it for scrap metal parts. Well. That's retirement, whether we're talking about selling it to someone else or in some way our relationship with that asset ends. Depreciation is a concept that I'm sure uh, a lot of you are familiar with from um, accounting classes that you have taken, but just as a broad overview of this, depreciation is the idea that over time the value of an asset um, typically will go down. And so we depreciate the asset as a way of reflecting our using up that asset over time. And there are lots of different ways this could work. Let me give this example, and then I'll, I'll give you a, a second for questions. We buy an asset that costs $100,000. And we know, based on the manufacturer and our personal experience, we're going to be able to use that equipment for 10 years. And we decide we're going to keep this really, really simple and employ what's called straight line depreciation, which means every year we're going to reduce the value of that asset in our books by $10,000. So that by the time we get to year 10, we reflect that this asset no longer has, has any value for us. So what that means in terms of our financial accounting records is we're going to have an accounting posting related to the initial acquisition. We're going to have annual postings that reflect depreciation. And then at some point, we're going to have a final posting if we're done with the asset that reflects its retirement. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly what we're talking about here, representing in our financial accounting records. All right, so let's just look at a, an example transaction for this. Um, we go out and we spend $10,000 buying a lathe, and we buy that lathe from a company called Custom Millworks. Well, what's the financial accounting postings going to look like here? We actually now have two subledger accounts because, first of all, uh, the implication of my scenario is that we're buying this on credit and um, the lathe is going to be an asset. So we go out, we find the lathe in our factory and we slap a big old asset tag on them. I know you've seen them on things before that says lathe number 146. And so we have an asset account reflecting uh, lathe number 146. So when we acquired it, we have increased our position in an asset. Increasing our position in an asset results in a debit. 
And so we debit the lathe 146 account for $10,000. And then we have an obligation to this vendor who for some reason insists that we pay for it. And so we have a credit that we issue or we post to their vendor account for $10,000 indicating that we now have a liability that, that we are going to settle. These are both subledger accounts. So that should immediately clue you into the fact that we're not done yet because nothing has hit the general ledger. And in fact, account determination now comes into play. Laves are in an asset class that we have mapped to the general ledger account called factory equipment. So anytime we buy an asset that's going to be in our factory, we put it in an asset class that designates it as such. And so this $10,000 debit bubbles up to a $10,000 entry in our general ledger debiting factory equipment. And just like when we bought other kinds of things on credit, this results in an automatic posting of summary data to accounts payable of, of $10,000. And so this is what we have done. And if we in fact looked in the account 146 for the lathe, uh, we would see that there's a $10,000 debit balance sitting out there reflecting the fact that that lathe uh, has that value for us. And so if we continue with what I was talking about here a moment ago, what this will mean is if we know that that lathe is going to last for five years, then if we're doing straight line depreciation, then every year we're going to come back and credit that account $2,000 to reflect its reduced value. And that's, of course, going to bubble up and a $2,000 credit to our factory equipment. Now, does that have any effect at all on our amount that we owe the vendor? Absolutely not. That's something totally independent. So the debit part of that transaction is probably going to go into some kind of accumulated depreciation account or something similar. Yes, sir. General ledger. Everything above this line is general ledger. Okay, and and this is this is a uh, balance sheet account because it's an asset account. Okay, and so what this does, and and uh, we won't go out and, and look at it right now, but if we looked at the ETSU, and and you can find this online, the ETSU balance sheet, and it will show you buildings ETSU, and it's a huge number. I mean, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But it's one, land, one line item that says buildings. And that's because every building on this campus has value. So when they post that online, they have one line item that says buildings and, the, and then a number. I believe the last time I looked at this for ETSU, you could go to another document, which would be the equivalent of looking at the details here in the subledger and see every one of the buildings listed individually along with their present value. And so that's what companies do in, in their reporting. Yes, sir. No. Now, elements related to the upkeep of Nix Hall might result in 
data being captured in the context of cost accounting. But for example, money spent to sweep the floors and keep the building clean doesn't inherently make the building more valuable. If we didn't do that, the building would become less valuable. But there's an inherent assumption here that you're, you're going you're gonna to do all the things you need to do to keep your asset working properly. So all the expenses that we incur that might in some way relate to the building, they're not a part of this. They're going to be other expenses that we're going to track in a different way. But if in the case of the Culp Center, right now, we might look on these records and say, okay, the Culp Center has a value of, of $50 million. Well, I think from what I read, this new renovation they're going to do is a $60 million renovation. So at that point, we would see, okay, Culp Center value $50 million. After the renovation, you would expect to see the new number there be $110 million reflective of the new value of that. So sometimes you might enhance an asset, but just doing things like buying furniture for a classroom and, and setting it up, that doesn't change the value of the asset. Okay. Other questions? Now, I need to introduce you to something new in the context of accounting that we will see in a few contexts that potentially potentially can be confusing. I don't think it has to be, but sometimes students do, do find this to be confusing. First of all, does everybody understand the scenario as, as we have it here on this slide in front of us? Okay, I'm not seeing any shakes of the head or smoke rolling out of anybody's ears, so I hope that means we're good here. I can acquire assets in a different way. I can acquire assets through use of a clearing account. And this is the first time we are going to see clearing accounts, but it will not be the last time we see clearing accounts this semester. What is a clearing account? A clearing account is an account that we use in financial accounting to take care of issues related to time synchronization. We will use clearing accounts later on in the semester to make sure that we don't pay for merchandise before we really should pay for it. And we can use it in this situation in a scenario where we don't want to set up all of the accounts like we saw illustrated on the last slide. Uh, clearing accounts, they can be used for buying things, they can be used for selling things. There are a wide array of scenarios where we could use a clearing account. Let me give you an example. I go out and buy something from a vendor. In light of the situation, I have every reason to believe that this will be a one-time transaction with this vendor and we will likely never ever do business again. Do I really have to go to the hassle of setting up a vendor account and all that's involved in that if this is going to be a one-time transaction? No, I can use a clearing account. Same thing with selling. I'm selling something to a customer and I have every reason to believe that I will never sell to that customer ever again. I still have to capture it in my financial accounting records, but can I do it without the hassle of setting up a subledger account? I absolutely can. And I do that through clearing accounts. So clearing accounts are used when we envision something happening as a one-time transaction 
and we don't want to set up customer accounts or vendor accounts because there is a good bit of workload associated with that and then they're going to show up on our records in perpetuity when in fact we just had a one-time relationship with that company. So how does this work? Well, we go out and we buy a $5,000 shredder on credit. But this is a one-time transaction. So I don't want to set up a vendor account. Now you might question that. You might say, well, we're buying on credit. Shouldn't we set up a vendor account? And my answer to that is we could. We absolutely could set up a vendor account, but I don't want to. And so I don't have to. The rules of associated with financial accounting will let me in this situation say, you don't have to do it. So I will not have a vendor subledger account. That's my red X there in the bottom right. Now, I bought a shredder that's worth $5,000. So I still need to capture that as an asset. So I'm going to debit the shredder account for shredder number 182 in my subledger. And that's going to map to, through account determination, an account in the general ledger called office equipment that captures the $5,000 debit. But where do I put the credit? Well, by virtue of the fact that there's only one account on my slide that I haven't written to, you have a pretty good idea where it's going at this point. It goes to an, a clearing account. I know it's a clearing account because the name of the account has the word clearing in it, which is pretty much going to be universal here. A clearing account is a temporary account. I look at that and say, I know that means that I owe somebody $5,000. Now somebody better be keeping track of who it is that I owe that money to. But it's not going to be kept in full detail in my, in my financial accounting records. Hopefully somewhere there's an invoice sitting on someone's desk that tells me where to mail the check to and things like that. Because I don't have a vendor account that, that has all of, all of the details here. So in this situation, how do I know to pay the bill? Whenever I see a credit balance in my clearing account, I know that tells me that, that I've got to be writing some checks and that detail on where those checks are to be sent are, is not going to be found in my financial accounting records. I still have debits equaling credits here, but I have wiped out the presence of a vendor account and I've used a clearing account instead. Are there other ways this could play out? Well, we receive the invoice for the shredder, okay? So now this is interesting. Um, we received the invoice from the shredder. Notice back here, we were left with $5,000 debit on both sides, $5,000 credit over here. That reflects that I owe money to someone. I get the invoice. Well, when I get the invoice, I credit my miscellaneous payables account for the price of the invoice, which I think was $5,000. This is a liability account. The other side of this now, the debit, goes to my asset acquisition clearing account as the debit part of this. What was previously in this asset acquisition account? When I, when I bought it, right? I credited it here. Remember that? 
Okay, so when the debits equal the credits and the balance of this account is zero, that tells me it's time to pay. I'm going to give you the next slide, show you the posting, and then we're going to back up and play through this again because this is really important. This might be the last thing we wind up talking about today. We pay for the shredder, we, we debit the miscellaneous payables account, and we credit our cash account. Okay, so the big question is, why did we do this? Why did we use a, a clearing account? Um, why did we have to do all of the debit and, and credit posting here? And, and to answer that, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to put this on, on the whiteboard instead to reflect the different accounts, okay? So here's our, here's our shredder account down here. Okay, this is in, this is a subledger account, okay? So here's our debits and credits. And, and here's our, our office equipment account. Okay, this is in the general ledger. The shredder is in an asset class that maps this up here. So I have debits and credits up here, but we know that whatever I do down here is going gonna, is gonna to come up here. Okay, and then I have my, my asset acquisition. I always make sure I spell asset right. I tend to put too many T's in it. Asset acquisition clearing. And so here's the T associated with that. Now let's, let's check our other slides and see what other accounts we had that, that ultimately were affected here. I have miscellaneous payables. So let's put it here. Miscellaneous payables. Here's my T account associated with that. And I, I think at this point, we've got, oh, cash account. Here's my cash account. Let me see if I can find a better whiteboard marker as we continue here. Okay, now here's, here's the big thing that I want you to see as we play back through this. And let's do it in a different order on purpose. When I get the invoice, I do not have a vendor subledger account. So whenever I get an invoice, I am going to, as we see here, credit, and that's writes with invisible ink apparently. Okay. So whenever I get the invoice, I am going to be crediting miscellaneous payables, and I am going to be debiting my asset acquisition clearing account. Okay? So this happens when I get the invoice. Okay, that's that's what that slide indicates. Okay? Now, what, what were other events that happened in this transaction? One was I got the shredder. So when I got the shredder, I debited the shredder account. So that's got shredder. That resulted in a debit up here. That happened when I got the shredder. And then 
what, what else happened? What was my offsetting posting here when I got the shredder? It was the asset acquisition clearing account. Got shredder. Now, I purposely did that in a different order, okay? Let's just look at what's going on on the board right now. I've got a debit balance here. I've got a credit balance here. But I have offsetting entries right here, right? I, I'm debiting and crediting the same account. So that brings me back to the question, why do I need a clearing account? Well, what the clearing account does is it tells me when I pay is based on two things happening. I have to get an invoice and I have to get the item I'm buying. So if I get an invoice for something but I don't have the item, the state of the asset acquisition account is I got the invoice so there's a debit balance sitting out there but I don't have the shredder so there's no corresponding credit. My account has a debit balance sitting in it, no pay. We don't pay yet. Okay, suppose I get the item, but I haven't gotten billed for it yet. I'm not paying for it yet. I know that I got the item because there's a credit balance sitting out there on my asset acquisition clearing account, but my signal to pay is when I have offsetting entries for the same amount resulting in a zero balance. And when that happens, now I part with cash. And so when I now pay, I credit my cash account and I debit my miscellaneous payables account. And so the only thing left is I have an asset sitting on my books and cash that has left my hand. What the clearing account does for me is provides me the ability to synchronize my financial records through a multiple step process that may reflect the passage of time. And the key elements to me are the event of getting an invoice and the event of getting the item. And so a clearing account like this will help me make sure I don't pay before I'm supposed to. Clearly a more complicated kind of transaction than we have talked about to this point. But I think particularly if you wrote down the events here and the debits and credits associated with it, hopefully you, you can go back and, and replay it. The point is, you know, I have the getting of the invoice and the getting of the item where I could get the invoice and then get the item or I could get the item and then get the invoice. They could occur in either, item, in either order. But I only want to pay once both of those things have happened. When we buy inventory, this is like a preview of the future. We will talk about an account called a GRIR account, which is goods receipt invoice account, or good voice, goods receipt invoice receipt. It's a clearing account, exactly like what we're talking about here. And we use it in the same way to make sure that we get stuff and we get a bill for it and that they match up. And see, that's the other thing this does for me. If I got a $5,000 shredder and an invoice for $7,000,
I need to pick up the phone and find out what's going on. If I get an invoice from a company that says I owe them money, and I don't have a corresponding entry here that validates the fact that, yes, I do owe them money for some reason, they're not getting money out of me. And so this gives us a way of keeping track of that in our financial accounting records. So to go back to why do we need a clearing account? Why can't we just do this without doing the clearing account? Well, what this does for us is the clearing account is necessary to achieve time synchronization between the delivery of the equipment and the receipt of the invoice. Those are two separate events. And we don't want to pay until we have both the asset and a proper invoice. Those are our rules. And as we illustrated on the whiteboard, we know we're good to pay when the asset acquisition clearing account has a zero balance. Now that's a, a sequence that your book walks through in your reading, so you can kind of uh, get a revisit of it there. Unfortunately, because we put it on the whiteboard, uh, the audio will be captured in our recording, but, but not the video of it but you should see the T accounts in your textbook. Um, make sure you understand the logistics of that. And so along those lines, questions. Let's do one more slide and then we'll call it good. We have like four minutes left and, and this will be a good place for us to stop as far as wrapping up a topic. And, and I, I talked about this already. So this is just a, a, a putting down on the slide of something I discussed a moment ago. Most fixed assets value goes down over time. And so depreciation is our way of reflecting the estimated change in value of an item. If you've ever heard the adage, uh, if you go out and buy a new vehicle by the time you drive it off the lot, it's already lost a lot of value. Well, to a certain degree, that's true. Certain assets appreciate in value. Um, we might see that with fine art. We might see that in some economies with things like buildings. But for most of the things that businesses acquire as for assets, the items get used up, they get run down, their value goes down over time. Depreciation is an expense. And it essentially reflects the company being charged for using the asset over time. If $50 million was invested in Nick's Hall, and it gets used for 50 years, and so every year we depreciate it by a million dollars. That's essentially like, say, the rent on Nick's Hall is a million dollars a year. And we just paid it all in advance, and so we're kind of writing it off every year a million dollars at a time as the building declines in, in value. In doing this, there are certain just key concepts. We have to think about, okay, how long is an asset going to last us? So we can find that out from the manufacturer. We can find it out based on our own experience. We can consult with other companies. If we have to, we can make a guess. But how long is an asset going to last us? The residual value is, okay, when we get rid of the item, um, how much are we going to be able to get for it? Some items have a residual value of zero. 
some items like I mentioned a moment ago, they always have an inherent value because you could sell them for scrap metal or something of that sort. So what's the value going to be when the item gets to the end of its useful life? And the book value is the initial cost of the item less any depreciation that has been accumulated over time. So if we bought Nick's Hall three years ago for $50 million and depreciated it at the rate of a million dollars a year, the current value of Nick's Hall would be $47 million because we have already made three different depreciation postings of a million dollars uh, for each year. The way this actually gets handled is this is an example of something that would be done in a company uh, at year end as part of their fiscal year end. And what they would do is they would do a depreciation posting run, which is a special program they run that just goes through, iterates through all of the assets, looks at the uh, predetermined schedule for depreciation, and makes that posting. And then at that point, our records reflect that that new depreciation. You know, we could do it, we could do it monthly, we could do it quarterly. Uh, but the fact is, I would I would gather to say that most companies will just do this once a year uh, at the end of their fiscal year. Okay. Questions about any of this? Mm-hmm. Other questions. That was an easy one. All right, when we get together on Tuesday of next week, we will most definitely wrap up financial accounting and start into our next topic. So make sure that you print out the next slide deck to bring with you. Uh, it is out there for you in D2L, talking about the procurement process. And I will look forward to seeing you guys when we get together on next Tuesday. Take care.